Well, welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. Uh, my name is Anthony Oliver, and today we're going to talk about the challenge of identifying the UK's infrastructure priorities. Now, successive UK governments have continued to highlight investment in both building new infrastructure and maintaining existing networks as a key to driving growth into the economy and underpinning the nation's prosperity. Yet, given the perilous state of the UK's finances, there's a clear need to prioritise that investment. And it's a huge challenge and in many ways a political quagmire. So who better to discuss this with than Sir John Armit, Chairman of the National Infrastructure Commission and the man in the hot seat when it comes to influencing these priorities. So John, welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. Morning, Anthony. Thank you. Well, John, let's start by finding out a bit more about the National Infrastructure Commission. Uh, John, you've been on the Commission since it was formed in 2015 and been chairman since 2018. Um, I mean, you've just been given a new two-year remit to lead the organisation. What does it do? Well, fundamentally, the Commission's job is to make recommendations to the government about the long-term infrastructure requirements of the UK. And we do that um, formally every five years. Um, when we prepare what's called a National Infrastructure Assessment. That looks 25 to 30 years ahead um, at the key uh, aspects of economic infrastructure, makes recommendations as to what the government needs to do uh, to, be in the, to be in the right position in the future to have the right infrastructure. And then in addition to that, every year, we in a sense mark the government's homework. So where it's accepted our recommendations, we report on what progress it is making um, towards meeting those uh, recommendations. And of course, you're about to publish that, that next uh, report and we'll talk a little about that later on. But as I said earlier, I mean, infrastructure investment is a hugely political business. Um, do you think that the National Infrastructure Commission has managed to take some of the heat out of that political process and help uh, delivery of better plans? Well, fundamentally, uh, you can't take the politics out of infrastructure. They are political decisions at the end of the day. Um, which governments uh, and governments have to make hard choices. Um, our job is to uh, do a very thorough uh, analysis, um, and the, it's very important that we get our analysis right. And we do that not only when we're talking about that. We don't need to talk to the government and uh, civil servants. We talk to the opposition, and we talk to the wider stakeholder group. So we're trying to generate as much political consensus, if you like. Um, across the board so that uh, it minimises the risk of the, the chop and change. Well, of course, assessing and prioritising the UK's uh, infrastructure needs is uh, the key role. And uh, I say right now you are preparing to publish your second five-yearly uh, needs assessment report in the autumn. Um, and before we get into the detail of that, you know, what, what's likely to be in that assessment, I mean, how do you go about it? And what have you learnt about that process and changed since you first published the, uh, the plan in 2018? Um, well, I think, the, as I say, the, the key thing is to, um, to get everybody to agree what the starting point is. So we start off by setting out what we believe the base position to be today. Where are we? What are the challenges ahead? And get people, um, as wide a group of people as possible, to uh, comment on that. We will talk to literally scores of uh, organisations and people. Uh, we go around the country. I've personally led seven or eight uh, uh, sessions around the country where we go and talk to, uh, uh, to local leaders. We talk to uh, business. We talk to different infrastructure interests. We talk, obviously, to statutory bodies and so on. So we try and build up that, uh, that broad um, conversation 
in which everybody gets the opportunity to comment so that we're taking into account as broad a group of uh, people with a real interest and understanding of infrastructure as possible. I mean, these are the the, you know, the sector and the theme-based roundtables. Um, I mean, how do you make sure, I mean, it's a, it's a classic challenge with any consultation, but how do you make sure you get all the voices into the room and not just, the, I suppose, the, the loud shouters or the usual suspects? Well, I think you've got to make sure that you get you, you get knowledgeable voices in the room um, because you don't want to be subject to, in a sense, as you say, simply the loud shouters who haven't really thought the issues through properly. And so there's still a few of those talk, around. Yeah, there's no shortage of those, but you need to talk to the experts um, because at the end of the day, any government, any minister will have no shortage of people whispering in his ear as to what the right solution is or isn't. And, uh, and therefore, we're seeking to try and find the path through that to give the best sort of balanced view, balanced opinion, um, which is authoritative. And because it has consulted, it has listened to all the different uh, expert opinions and given as good an analysis as it's possible to do. And, as long as, and that's very critical to our credibility, I think, that when we publish, we haven't got a row of people all standing up saying, oh, well, that's wrong. Um, and I think, broadly speaking, we've always managed to avoid that. Do you, are you seeing now the voice of reason uh, when it comes to investment plans? I was wondering, my question is, I suppose, can the Infrastructure Commission, can it still be a nuisance? Um, you know, to what extent you know, do you have to stay inside the tent to create impact? Or can you be the agitator from the outside? Well, we could, we've got to do both. And in the classic phrase, we have to roll the wicket. Uh, we have to make sure that government departments aren't sort of totally surprised by something that we published and forced onto the defensive. So we will always roll the wicket. We'll go and talk to them about what we're going to say. We won't necessarily change our mind because they don't like it. Um, we may change the phraseology a little bit, but fundamentally we, we will stick to the principles that we've uh, come to understand. So we can be there as, if you like, gingering things up in the background and we can be going out and making large public statements. So we have to you know, you use all the techniques of modern communication, I suppose, and try and get to a balanced, uh, a balanced approach. But, you know, we are independent. Uh, we might be a government agency, but we are specifically appointed to be independent. Well, I suppose the next big test of that, John, comes uh, in the autumn when you publish your second national infrastructure assessment. You know, they say it's the five-yearly landmark report on the future priorities. Um, I mean, you deliver a costed recommendation to the government to ensure the country is ready to face the demands and opportunities of the next 30 years. How would you describe those demands and opportunities? Well, in the current, um, this current next assessment, what we don't want to do is sort of just simply regurgitate what we produced in 2018, because, you know, we're, we're about trying to create some sort of stability. And we constantly say, you know, let's not constantly have a change of view by, by, by different governments or different ministers. So we need but some consistency. But that's hard because infrastructure moves very slowly. Well, infrastructure does move and technologies change and technologies create new opportunities. Um, one of the biggest debates at the moment, of course, is about hydrogen and what is the role of hydrogen in the future. And therefore, that is something which we will be looking at in this next uh, NIA. Um, indeed, carbon capture storage as well. So we're going to be looking at the networks which potentially would be required to make those um, really active uh, uh, actors, if you like, in the, in the, energy, in the energy space. But in this particular NIA, we will pick up on the significant issues which have developed since the last one. So the importance of uh, urban transport, 
the importance of getting ourselves to net zero. And the targets changed. In 2018, it was 85% reduction. Um, by um, by 2050, it became 100%. So we're looking for net zero. So that creates an, a fresher uh, uh, challenge in, um, in uh, 2050. Um, the other sort of issues which are very important is the continued devolution of um, the finance from the centre to uh, to the local authorities, um, and as I say, we we need to look at uh, we need to look at issues like domestic heating. We didn't look at that at all in 2018. It's becoming more and more important as we strive for net zero as to how are we going to decarbonise um, our homes and the heating systems in them. So, so it goes beyond, as you say, goes beyond what you did last time. Uh, and it's more than simply finding new ways to land the same messages. Absolutely. I think the key thing is we have to point out to government the urgency of the situation. 2050 is barely, to, it's just over 25 years away. Infrastructure takes at least 15 years to do, uh, to deliver. So we haven't got very long to make these really significant changes. And that will be central, I'm sure, to our recommendations is the need for urgent action. Well, clearly, as you say, technology is rapidly changing the world. We're hearing constantly about the role, benefits, threats from artificial intelligence, for example. Data and digital systems are certainly the future. Um, and I see the Commission is seeking a new policy fellow to join the team uh, to specifically look at that uh, you know, digital and data scene. I mean, is that about setting up, you know, setting the organisation up for a new data-driven future? Oh, I think there's. <laughs> I don't think anybody would disagree that uh, data is is more and more important. You know, how do you make the right decisions? How do you how do your systems actually react in the right way if they haven't got the right data coming in? So data is fundamental. You know, we've always said if you can't if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. <laughs> and fundamentally, what data enables us to do is measure things. And of course, with modern uh, with modern techniques and modern technology, you can measure that data in milliseconds. <laughs> okay, so if digital and data is your thing, then put your application in now for a, a role at the uh, National Infrastructure Commission. By the sound of it, that's right. Let's talk about you for a moment, John. As I said earlier, you have been at the National Infrastructure Commission since 2015, but your career has spanned a huge amount. Landmark bridges, mega projects, running contracting businesses and national railways, and of course, steering institutions and transport companies. Um, navigating politics is a consistent factor for all of these. I mean, how do you approach that challenge? Um. It's a, it's a good question, and if I think back to the 1990s when I was still a, a you know a dedicated contractor, as it were, and thinking about well what what interested me and what interested me at that time, and I suppose why my career has changed in the way it has was the importance of the interface between business and government, and that interface between business and government I think is absolutely critical. We don't achieve anything without that interface working effectively. And therefore, the opportunity to work in that space where, in fact, you can represent and you've got knowledge of the, the way industry thinks, the way business thinks, what drives business, what enables them to invest, what encourages them to invest. And at the same time, understanding the challenge that politicians have, particularly the short term, balancing the short term and the long term. And I just find it fascinating um, sort of being involved and having an understanding of both worlds and through an understanding of both worlds, hopefully able to make a contribution. So your next career move could well be as a politician, perhaps? I, I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> we heard it here first. Of course, 
You were famously in charge of, uh, well, one of the people in charge of uh, the London 2012 Olympic Delivery Authority, uh, which um, yeah, rarely, perhaps for a construction uh, project in the UK, delivered um, on time and to expectation and on budget, uh, albeit a rather large budget. Um, what's, what's your secret for project delivery success? Well, I think, number one, you have to have an intelligent client because the client sets the culture, the client uh, has to know what it is that he wants. He, have to, he has to know what he values. We often talk about time, time, cost and quality and, you know, and say it's very difficult to have all three in equal measure. You're going to have to make some hard choices about what you really value. And in the case of the Olympics, of course, it was time because it had to be finished on time. That might mean some extra expenditure in order to meet that. And so you can't, you know, you've got the client has to understand what his issues are and to be consistent in his policy towards them. And then I think the other thing which I believe more and more uh, and which I saw very strongly in evidence during the Olympics was collaboration between the parties. So the more everybody collaborates, the more likely you are to, to get the, the end result right. But the lead has to come from a very intelligent and thoughtful client. Let's talk about some of your career highs and, uh, and, and some of the things. Maybe, maybe play, play a game of this versus that. Um, second seven crossing versus 2012 Olympics, which gave you greatest satisfaction? <laughs> well, they're totally different. I, second seven crossing, every, every engineer likes to build a bridge, as they often say. Uh, and I mean, it was a fantastic project. Um, we had that design and build approach. We also did the financing of it. So it was uh, after Dartford. I think it was the second major PFI contract uh, in in the country. Um, and for me, it um, it showed how focusing on incentives, for example, is more in, more important than penalties. So we said to the designers, look, guys, we've got a lump sum here to build this bridge. So how about you share in the, in the possible savings that we can make um, and we'll, we'll give you extra fee if you can help us to keep the, uh, uh, the, the materials which are going to go into this, um, into this bridge at, a, at the bid level or even less. And they were quite shocked. <laughs> offended their offended their professional dignity, but in fact they signed up to it. We had a joint venture of French and British um, consultants working together, and I was particularly proud of that because I believed that the French had a lot to offer in design and build, and that's why I wanted them to come in to see it finished on time, to see it pay for itself before the end of the thirty-year concession. All very satisfactory things, uh, but it was a single project. The Olympics was multiple projects, um, with, right, yeah. you know, with multiple contractors, very much more under the public eye. It was a national, although it was a London project, it was equally a national project. And of course, you know, the opening ceremony was, you know, uh, it brought tears to my eyes, the opening ceremony. I thought it was absolutely amazing. And uh, so I think what the great thing about the Olympics was the lift it gave to the country in 2012 and the opportunity for everybody to be very proud of what Britain could do. I think I, I agree. I, mean, I think 10, 10 or 11 years on, people still talk about it as a thing that they remember. What were they doing uh, during, the, during the opening ceremony? Yeah. Um, okay, another two, uh, running Costain versus running Network Rail. You know, which would you do again? Well, one's a contractor and one's essentially a client. You know, they are different. Um, I was able to bring you know, 20, 
you know, 27 years of experience with Lang to what I then had to do at Costain. Costain was in a bit of difficulty when I arrived, and so it was great to be able to work with the team uh, and, and turn it around. It introduced me to the whole challenge of refinancing and, and so on. So I learned something about refinancing. It was a fascinating period. Network Rail was a, was a new entity. I mean, Network Rail was a, a not-for-dividend business, um, born out of the difficulties of rail track. Again, taking a business which had really, in a sense, lost its sense of direction. Um, they'd forgotten that they were owners of a great big asset. They'd subcontracted everything out, got themselves into financial difficulty with, um, with the West Coast upgrade. Um, so again, we were creating a new team. We were creating a different way of doing things. And we were providing this enormous public service. And to be able to be involved in providing that day-to-day -day public service with all the challenges is, is immensely challenging <laughs> uh, and immensely satisfying when it goes right and immensely frustrating when it goes wrong. Um, so, you know, great times. I, I remember you saying when you finished at Network Row, you were quite pleased to give the, uh, the bleeper back. It was a 24-7, <laughs> seven yeah. days a week job. Last, last quick one then. What's the project you most like to say, uh, I helped uh, to do that or to build that or to run that? Oh, well, as a single project, I think it was Second Seven Crossing because I think it brought so many things that I believed in together. Um, the combination of public and private sector working together, designers and contractors working together, international designers working with British designers. It was a massive collaborative uh, opportunity, and I can't um, and I and I can't leave talking about it without paying credit to Norman Haste, who was the on-site project director, who did such a brilliant job as the on-site project director. Um, but it was um, you know, that joint venture of British and French companies working together, um, and government and the private sector working together, so much which I think is important in in our future infrastructure. And uh, not just Britain trying to do it by itself, but Britain being a global country, um, which takes the best of what is available internationally. Okay. Well, this, that brings us back to uh, the here and now. And uh, the Infrastructure Progress Review 2023 is about to be published 27th of March, um, which is your review about how well the government has taken on board your recommendations. Um, what can we expect to see in this report? Will it be a good reading for the government? Well, I hope the government will find it with some positive bits and it will find some uh, some sort on its tail in those areas where, in fact, we think there's still room for improvement. There will, you know, there are always room for improvement in everything. And we will point out where there are rooms, there's room for improvement um, and we will be complimentary where we believe government's been doing a good job. OK, I mean, the last needs assessment made 13 recommendations. Um, we have the UK Infrastructure Bank, as recommended, um, you know, but what are you? What are the standout successes that you're going to highlight? Um, and when you look at the progress of delivering infrastructure, well, you just mentioned one of them, and that was the establishment of the uh, UK Infrastructure Bank. Um, that was something we recommended, and it was great to see it uh, implemented. We have seen some some short term progress in government um, making funds available to metro mayors to make their own decisions about the infrastructure they. They need, that's good. There's, there's more to do, but they're, they're making good progress. It's good to see that we've gone from 4% in 2018 
um, fiber rollout to 70% of homes now having access to that. That's been a great success. And again, I think what we learn from that is how when the regulator, industry and government work together, identify the, the barriers, if you like, and put teams together to overcome those barriers, you see that progress, which is necessary. We need to do more of that and we can learn from the success of the digital um, rollout in, in that respect. And of course, we are seeing significant movement towards uh, everyone accepting that the future for energy is going to be renewables. We made that very clear in 2018. Good progress is being made. But as I said earlier on, you know, the foot has got to remain. <laughs> I'm going to say the foot has got to remain on the gas, which is probably not the appropriate <laughs> analogy in this case. But, uh, you know, we've got to keep the we've got to keep the pressure up to make sure that we do meet our renewable challenges. Are, are there some great um, missed opportunities that you've seen over the last five years? No, I think the, the the most tricky challenge that we set out for government in 2018 was when we said that there needed to be 21,000 interventions a week in our homes uh, in order to make our homes thermally efficient and to get our homes um, away from, from natural gas. That was an enormous challenge, and I think it's one which... Uh, it's been very difficult to for government to take up. They've tried different initiatives. Nothing's really worked so far. And so that remains a number one priority is to how do we get probably 15 million homes more thermally efficient and ready for alternative renewable energy systems. Well, and, and a social challenge as well, because um, it's, it's getting involved with people's lives uh, very intimately in many ways. Yeah. Precisely. It's, a, it's very local. It's also a great job opportunity. Because this is across the country, you know, and it's not necessarily really high tech uh, solutions. Uh, it's an enormous number of jobs for people at a local level, plumbers, electricians, builders. Um, and so it's a, it helps towards the big challenge of leveling up because it creates jobs, worthwhile jobs right across the country in local communities, which that money gets spent locally. So I see it as one of the great opportunities for, for leveling up. Well, well, that local aspect uh, takes me on to the final point, just uh, to touch on it's something you've been asked to do, which is um, you've been asked to review the current approach to the national policy statements and identify how the planning system uh, can create greater certainty for infrastructure investors, developers and local communities. Um, I mean, that's clearly a critical piece of work. What's, what is that going to say? Well, of course, we saw um, we saw the government make some proposals about this only, only last week. We will seek to build on those proposals. The national policy statements, I think, are the starting point. Um, we need also to look at how we might be able to incentivize people to accept things which they don't you know, necessarily want in their backyard. But if they can share in the, uh, in the benefits which flow from that, then that could be another way of looking at it. We have a lot to do, uh, and the planning system has to be an enabler, not a preventer. And that requires, once again, you come back to your point, uh, Anthony, about uh, social issues and, and local local communities and local people. We've got to find the right balance between engaging them um, and getting their support to enable us to do what needs to be done. Well, given, I suppose, that planning is still one of the biggest problems holding back the delivery of infrastructure in the UK and, and delivering those social benefits and economic benefits. I mean, are there any quick wins that you see to accelerate uh, you know, that reform, to accelerate that outcome delivery? Um, in terms of quick wins, the front end is the challenge and improving the consultation, 
uh, making sure that people have a proper understanding of what needs to be uh, <clears throat> needs to be done and the benefits that are going to flow from that. We pay for our infrastructure one way or another. We either pay for it through general taxation or we pay for it through consumers. And finding the right balance in that is is brings you right back to politics um, because only government can make those critical decisions. Well, let's finish on that note and and to a final point. I mean, after a long and influential career, obviously you haven't finished your long and influential career yet, but (laughs) after a long and influential career in the infrastructure sector, I mean, what would you say we need to do to convince politicians uh, that um, investment in infrastructure will, in the long run, deliver those social, those economic benefits to the nation? Well, I think we have, to your point there, we have to keep reminding them infrastructure is not a short-term issue. It's a long-term issue. And to deliver it successfully and effectively and to provide our children and our grandchildren with the future that they um, should expect and be entitled to, we've got to make those big decisions today and stick to them. And I think that's what we have to keep reminding politicians about. These are not sticky plaster solutions. These aren't let's do it today, we see the benefit tomorrow. These are let's plan today, let's invest in the coming years to give us those long-term benefits. And that's, uh, that's challenging. But, um, you know, politicians cannot run away from that. They must not run away from that. And our job is to make sure that they don't run away from it and that they understand the issues properly. John, uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the Infrastructure Podcast. I really look forward to reading the second National Needs Assessment and, of course, the uh, the Progress Review, which is coming out uh, very shortly. Uh, and I'm pleased that you're going to be standing behind them, uh, making sure they're going in the right direction. Thanks for joining me today, John. Thank you, Anthony, and thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, John. Uh, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, we've got more, though, on the in the pipelines from the Infrastructure Podcast and more guests to talk to as we continue to probe the big issues uh, faced across the sector. If you haven't done so already, do check out the new Infrastructure Podcast website. That's www.infrastructure-podcast.com, where you will find background information and all the latest podcasts to listen to and to share. So thanks for joining us. Thanks again to John, and I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Yeah.